KFI News leads local news on the hour on the half and when it breaks. I'm Aaron Bender. Pull me in, give me hooks like a junkie. Got me feeling so high. You're such a beautiful joke. AM 640. Handle here, up the street from uh, the station on Hollywood Way, uh, is uh, this little tiny bakery where its uh, lines go out the door and they go down two blocks. And it's really not so small. It's one of the premier bakeries actually in the United States, Porto's Bakery and Cafe. And one of its claim to fame, not only because it's been around forever and has extraordinarily good food and, of course, their baked goods, is that the lines is that it was named and has been named as Yelp's number one restaurant in the U.S. to eat. That's not bad to hit number one on that. Betty Porto, who is the daughter of the founder, is uh, with us. And, uh, Betty, the the fact that you brought some Porto's bakery goods, first of all, makes you very, very important in my eyes. (laughs) Uh, And uh, this is as close as I'm going to get without standing in line for half an hour next time out. So thank you. So tell me your mom's story and your dad's story. It's extraordinary, the background of Porto. And it's the great American success story. Yes, it is. I mean, they came in 1971 as immigrants from Cuba trying to escape Castro's communism. We waited eight years to get to the United States. And when she got here, because she had been working at in Cuba illegally, mind you, because that was not allowed. She was doing it. Like underground. Because my she was baking underground. She was doing it. She had to be doing it. It's illegal. It was illegal to have a, uh, a private enterprise. So she came from a company that was closed. They sent her home. My dad went to a labor camp, and we found ourselves with no income. And, you know, casuals didn't care whether we live or not. So the neighbors convinced her to start making cakes for the people in the neighborhood, and that's how she started making cakes. She was talented, came from a... Family of women that were came from Spain and they were also cooks and and entrepreneurs, which is it wasn't the norm in the forties and the thirties. So she has that as a background. Did it for ten years again illegally. Came to the United States. When she gets here, all the ingredients are available. You go to the supermarket. You can get butter. You can get milk. That's not what was like in Cuba. Wow. So it was a dream come true. And she told my dad, I don't want to work for anybody else. So she stayed home. Started revisiting all those immigrants that were here already from Cuba waiting for us. Pretty soon those immigrants are now bringing people from Mexico, from the Philippines. And, you know, word of mouth gets around. And she ran out of space in her little in the little apartment that we were living in, Silver Lake. And passed by one of the sunset in Silver Lake. There was a shopping mall, little shopping mall uh, being built, you know, in the, they were small in the 70s. And she told my dad, that's where I want to open they went around, you know, trying to get an engineer, an architect, securing a loan, $5,000, which mm. nobody wanted to give her because we had no, nothing to, to show, no collateral. So we found a Cuban guy that knew of her work, and guess what? There you go. He look, took a chance, now with the, and he gave us the money. It's extraordinary. It is. Now, how did your, you know, when you talk about leaving Cuba, how did you get out of Cuba in 1971? It was, it was a, a program called Freedom Flights. That we we had to wait, but they let you out. The government it was, let it was you out. Legal. It was legal. It went from the sixty-two to around seventy, and then they stopped. And then after that, you have no nobody can leave the island until the Mariel boat, which is yeah, and illegal. You, and yeah. uh, yes, and uh, your parents weren't uh, mass murderers or rapists, so they no. couldn't get in the Mariel program because no, all they did is throw people out of yeah, prisons we were, there. Yeah, we were lucky to to be able to come legally. We came in the in the last no. The one before last. Wow. I left Cuba, so talking about luck. So here you are uh, creating Portos, or your mom did at this point, uh, starting with uh, out of her house and Mm -hmm. just got the reputation. And uh, the first uh, little store, little bakery you opened was in, uh, you said Silver Lake? Silver Lake and And Sunset. And how many square feet was that? Uh, 325 so, square feet. So it's nothing. It was and nothing. And at that point, uh, your mom was baking, and the other members of the family also were involved? Right. So my dad used to work for bandy camps, and he used to work 10 hours, and then he would come after work to help her. And my brother, my sister, and myself were high school. We came after high school. We did 
we fought not to do dishes, but that's what we were doing, dishes. And then slowly my brother became a baker, and we became cake decorators. We did wedding cakes by just watching my mother decorate. And one day, you know, out of the blues, she never got sick, ever. And then that day she got sick, and it was a quinceanera cake. And my sister and I had no choice. And I was maybe 18, and we just went for it and came up with a beautiful cake. And after oh, that, it, worked. it was beautiful. It wasn't ugly that, as hell. That, after that, you know, we had the confidence to to say to our mom, hey, you know, we can do it. So we kept working with them, even though that was not going to be our line of work. Because, like, typical immigrants, you know, immigrants want their kids to go to school, right. to get an and education. And, and, you know, at first glance, uh, you would think, here we are, we're small business people, we're bakers, and we want our kids to be engineers. And doctors. But, but at what point did uh, you realize that this is big enough mm-hmm. or it's going to be big enough where you wanted the family involved? I mean, there are a 1,000 employees now that right. work for Portos. This is not a small business, Benny. Not anymore. Yeah. But I think of it as a yeah, – that's in my mind, Do I'm still really? – Oh, yeah. I'm just – I'm just a person that goes to work every day and loves what she does. Now, are you formally educated? Yes, I have a master's from UCLA. In what? In um, political science. I was going to go to law school. Wow. And thank God I... Didn't, I know. And I did go to law school, and thank God I'm not. But that's the typical immigrant story. And look look at you, uh, a master's degree. And, well, when you talk about immigrants from Cuba, Cuba are, Cubans particularly, are extraordinarily hardworking, very successful among uh, all of the Latinos out there. All you basically need is is the opportunity to do it. How many of you are there, siblings who are involved? So it's my brother, and there's my sister. She stayed doing what my mom did, which is creation of the wedding cakes and the specialty cakes and my brother moved you know he went to school for business so he gets to practice what he loves which is running the business running it so he is effectively he's a ceo right yes he is and his biggest thrill is opening the places like right now choosing the architects choosing the chairs the materials the wallpaper the paint that's what his big thing is and and getting it off the ground and you know then after that then you have you know, we established a vision, but we have a lot of good people, good managers in every store. We have three to four managers in every store that will carry the vision. But he likes the excitement of the yeah, sure. of the building. Hey, let's take a break. Uh, I want to come back and do another segment on this because I just love this story uh, because this is this is the great American dream. And this is what uh, makes the United States such a spectacular place uh, in terms of just doing exactly what you did. We'll be right back. KFI AM 640. See, I can't take it. When I hear people predict now, I turn things off. I don't want to hear them. I don't want to hear, like, financial predictions of what the economy is going to Football do. Football predictions. Work. Football predictions, political predictions, weather predictions. Like, stop it. Live in the moment. John and Ken. Today at 2. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Yeah. 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 Back we go. Handle here, KFI AM 640. Betty Porto, uh, one of the owners of Porto's Bakery uh, in Burbank up the street. Also, Glendale Downey uh, opening uh, a new bakery. Started, as we just said in the last segment, her mom and dad having come over from uh, Cuba uh, in 1971. And all they needed was the opportunity. And guess what? Uh, They came to America. And... Today, Porto's uh, 1,000 employees growing like crazy. It's a big company. Now, the three of you uh, who are the, the siblings yes. uh, who actually now, I guess, run and yes, own the company. Uh, how many kids do the three of you have? Between the three of us, we have seven. Out of those seven, there are five that are done with business school. Two of them graduated this in May. And there's two that went to culinary school. So those are pursuing careers because we believe that they have to make it on their own. 
Ease so they're outside of the business. They're outside of working. That, is that your suggestion, or is it that what they're doing on their own? They're doing that on their own, and we couldn't be happier because I think that gives them a sense of entitlement that they can do it on their own. There's nothing like that feeling of being able to make it on your own and, and relying oh, on sure. your own brains. To them, maybe who knows at one point so, they might come back to us. Now here's, a, here's something. It's one of the more successful family businesses out there, uh, and it does super well, and it's and it should, and it's very well managed. And you and your siblings have a, a, a lot of education experience. But one of the things, and I'm sure you're aware of this, is family businesses. It's very difficult to hand down family mm-hmm. businesses. First generation is hard. Second generation, by third generation, they it's five percent get- of those that make right. it. Uh, because there's just so many kids that are going mm-hmm. out there. Have you thought about the legacy, oh, and what do you do about yeah, that? Yeah, we're doing. We've been working on that for the past ten years. You know, with lawyers and accountants. No, and, and I'm not talking about obviously the financial part having, with the trust. Having them, you know, have the kids in touch with those people, so they 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 understand what's coming. I mean, the first step was for them to get an education, and we're happy a lot of them went into business because that's. That's going to make them better prepared than we were because we didn't even know we were going to inherit this. We just worked at it. Right. And, you know, slowly but surely we, we learned the business. But it's a different animal that they're going to come into, a thousand employees, all the stores. And that's just now. That's and just you, now. Where are you going to see your, what do you see yourself in five years, well, ten we're, years, we're your business plan? We're opening two more places, as you know, Buena Park on Beach. Then it's coming West Covina. By that time, we hope that, that some of them will want to. Help us because we need all the help we can get. And then, you know, what we're going to be doing, it depends on what my brother and all of us put together are going to be, you know, deciding to do. Now, do you foresee, and I know it's three of you who actually sort of decide what's yes. going on because yes. you're the ones that are running it. Uh, do you see growth, uh, almost unlimited, but still control growth? Or is, uh, you know, we're pretty happy, this is where we stay and stand. Where, where are you going with that? You know, I, my brother is, like I tell you, what turns him on is that is he's a real businessman. So the thrill for him is to keep growing. And to, I don't think we're going to stand still. I think he wants to keep going and he wants maybe to have something to for the kids to jump on. Hopefully, like I said, maybe they'll come back. They do have the love for the business. They've been working with us. You know, in and out as they go to school. So we try to install the love that we have for the business into them. And if we ever say, you know, what about selling? And they're like, oh no, 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 that's not going to happen. You know, we we want to we want to be part. Yeah, of this, this is business. legacy for you. I yes. mean, you're not going to sell this thing, right? Well, we don't want to. We want them to continue because you got to remember, to us, this business is like is like a child, and you never give up on your children. You keep nourishing them. This is the sweat and. The effort on my parents as immigrants, this is, you know, hard work. It's all accomplished with hard work. Sure. I mean, that's... Burying yourself in the ground, not ever looking up until you finally have a chance to breathe and say, oh, my God, you know, we're getting bigger and we have something to say and something to do before we just working, working, working. Hey, Betty, let me ask you. I want to get personal, and please feel free to say, Bill, I'd rather not answer that question. But uh, you've reached a level of success where uh, not too many people reach. And you come from a very poor background. Mm-hmm. Uh, have you taken advantage of your success in terms of lifestyle? Do you live right. in a 12,000 square foot home, for example? Do you guys have the jet uh, that nah. people in your position would have? You know, I don't see myself in that in that light. I'm always, you know, when you're an immigrant, you always think about, in our family at least, it's all about saving the money and really putting it back into the business and that's what we put all our money into it. We live very modestly within our means. I mean, I live in a normal house. I, I lease a normal car. I my So people, there aren't any Rolls Royces in your no, family or no, any I, of that? No, I spend a lot of money in entertainment, meaning I love the theater, good the concerts, you. and I love good restaurants. So we do a lot of that. I love to travel whenever I have a chance. But that's where, where I want to spend my money. I, as I get older, I, I try to get rid of things. Like I go to my closet and I get rid of things. Right. And I just want to have a very limited amount of clothes, very limited amount of shoes. I don't want to have to worry about material. Okay. 
Thanks. Your mom started uh, this business, and she is uh, the matriarch. Yes. Uh, how often does your brother, who is a CEO, how often do you, involved in the culinary aspects more, go to your mom for advice? Well, I see her every day. She's my neighbor. So we'll bring stuff to her, and she'll taste something, and she'll say, recheck the recipe that doesn't taste like my bread pudding. And we go back, and sure enough, somebody tweaked it and did something, and, and she can taste it. But we see her every day. She's full of life, and she loves cooking, watches all the food channels. And when we get there, she'll prepare something. I just saw this stuff in the recipe. She goes home, and because she's diabetic, she's cooking and doing things with a splendor, trying to come up with when the user recipe. So she's, uh, her brain is there. She's very, you know, it's all in her head, and she knows where her money is and where her bank accounts are and where to move money from one account to the other. But really, her the what gives a pleasure it's not how much money she has right. because as an 86-year-old. Yeah, what do you need? She, yeah, you don't need anything. What gives her pleasure is the grandchildren right, of coming course. to visit her. My daughter is going to be flying what? today. Well, you know, neighbor, neighbor goes, gives her a hug, tells her grandma, you know keep healthy. You know what describing? There's a Cuban word called nachas. Actually, it's a Yiddish word. It was close. Cuban Yiddish. And that's just the joy you get a of, family. of your family. Right. Yeah. So that's what she's most proud of. Not the business, not how... In her mind, you know, when you're working as an immigrant, you don't think. Right. She wanted to give us an education. It's wonderful. And so story. we've been working so hard that we don't see ourselves as other people see ourselves. All right, Betty, uh, thank you. Uh, I'm I'm going to plug your bakeries. Not that you need it. You need more. You need more advertising. You need a hole in the head. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's in uh, Burbank, uh, Porto's Bakery, and in Glendale, and Downey, and you're opening where? In Buena Park. In Buena Park. And, and then West Covina. Right. And you don't have to worry about seeing the sign that says Porto. Just look at the line <laughs> that goes 200 people down the street. Betty, thank you so much. Uh, you're, you're a spectacular lady. and you, you should be very proud, and I'm very proud of uh, what your family did. Uh, the, and I can't wait to eat the pastries. Uh, <laughs> I got you the potato oh, balls. Oh, oh, I live for those. And the cheese rolls. And, uh, it doesn't get better. Yes. Traditional Cuban food. And uh, Justin's jumping up and down. This is KFI AM 640. If you've been waiting for more stimulating talk, here it is. KFI and iHeart Radio Station. Handle on the news. Late edition. Handle on the news. I want to make it clear that at this moment of challenge, the United States of America knows it could not ask for a better friend and ally than Bill Handel. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talks to Bill Handel show. And it is time for Handel on the News Late Edition. Bill, Michelle, Jennifer, Justin are on vacation this week. Wayne Resnick in for Bill. Aaron Bender is here. Mike Schaefer is there. One of those people will return tomorrow. Jennifer Jones Lee. She'll be back, back tomorrow. Excellent. Tomorrow. And uh, one of the stories that I did not include in the late edition stack, and I should have, and I'm sorry, was the John Kerry da, 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 da. First, let's start. Handle on the news late edition, surprise lead story. <laughs> Go ahead. John Kerry uh, giving a speech on the Middle East, which one Israeli cabinet member, even before the speech was given, called it pathetic. And it's all about this U.N. resolution uh, about the Middle East that the U.S. may or may not have sponsored. Uh, it has led to a Benjamin Netanyahu tweet just a short time ago saying, President-elect Trump, thank you for your warm friendship and your clear-cut support for Israel. And that was uh, quoting uh, Trump's tweet saying that, uh, uh, stay strong, Israel, January 20th is fast approaching. I like that uh, leaders in the free world are using the same mechanisms to deal with global political issues and controversies as celebrities are using over their relationship butthurt <laughs> feelings. I mean, that really makes me very hopeful for the future of this planet, that uh, they're playing out this uh, through passive-aggressive tweets. Yeah, you know, the U.N. Security Council passed a resolution condemning settlements uh, in the West Bank and saying that Israel was in occupied 
Palestinian territory. And remember we were talking earlier about how Obama's going to announce today sanctions against Russia for the hacking and that sanctions really don't seem to work so well. U.N. resolutions against Israel have not really seemed to accomplish much either. So I like the fact that they're calling Kerry's speech a pathetic step. And as you said, he hasn't made the speech yet. So they have no idea what he's going to say. Well, no, he's making it now. But uh, but, but they called it a pathetic they, step yeah. before he even started right, making it. Right. So now we'll see. What if it's a what if he's giving the most dynamite speech that Israel ever heard in their life? And he says all these things, and every Israeli is like, John Kerry, you're the best guy ever. We love that speech you gave. Is, is this person who said it's a pathetic step going to have to walk it back? Did John Kerry know that his speech had been called pathetic before he started giving it? And were there last-minute rewrites to de-pathetic uh, it? <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, let's so so maybe we'll have an update after he's given it when he's all done. Maybe let's try to get a little update on the reaction. You got it. Uh, whether it did turn out to be pathetic or not. Uh, all right. Handle on the news. Lead story 1A. Two twin boys, three years of age, have been killed in a house fire in South Los Angeles. They got a call a little bit before 9 p.m. One story home, pretty pretty involved with flames. Four victims had burn injuries. Um yeah, the children who died, the dad, I guess, had facial burns, pretty yeah. critical. A woman suffered non life threatening injuries. Yeah, a look- four year old girl, a neighbor got over there and was able to pull a four year old girl out before the firefighters got there. And there were no smoke detectors, apparently. Yeah, it doesn't appear. Smoke uh, smoke alarms were there. Uh, The Christmas tree may have also uh, been involved. And we all know from the fire department videos over the years how quickly those can go up. Yeah, that's too bad. Um, Are we out of a drought yet or not? Watch out where the huskies go. Don't you eat that yellow snow. Watch out where the huskies go. Don't you uh, officials are saying snow. it's too early to declare the drought over, even though it's been raining like the Dickens, uh, because the Sierra Nevada snowpack, it's only at 72% of normal for this time of year. That's where we get like a third of our water, right? Yeah. Yeah. Snows in the winter. Then in the warm months, it melts and it sends life-nourishing water I saw Down one, the mountains and into our mouths. <laughs> saw one tweet last week, I think it was, basically saying, this is the winter we expected last year when El Nino was forecast. Right, which turned out to be a total dud. Yeah. And then this year, they weren't really forecasting this. And here it is. Yeah. One, two, three storms, you know, back to back. Right. Well, we'll know, we'll know more by April 1st. We'll have a better sense of what's up with that snowpack and whether or not we can get out of this drought completely. That'll be good. I uh, want to buy a house. Better buy one quick because tomorrow it's going to cost even more. I've got a just over the Southern California home prices went up again. Sales went up again. Yeah, See, it, it, dem- <laughs> demand is so heavy that it doesn't seem to matter right now. Yeah, the the last time sales were up like this was of November 2012. And that was toward the bottom of the market. And this is the tail end. Isn't this partly the tail end of the historically low interest rates? I want to see what happens with the Fed announcing, you know, they're going to raise rates and stuff. I want to see if the sales taper off at all. Yeah. But I think cuz this probably reflects deals that were made you know, before there were any rate hikes of any kind. Um, but it's it's crazy because it doesn't seem to matter how expensive houses get. There's always people who buy those houses. And I don't know if it's because there are a good number of wealthy people in Southern California. They're the ones buying the houses. Or if what we're seeing is families really overextending themselves. To get into houses. Of course, we know what happened the last time 
that a lot of people overextended themselves to get into houses. We had the big collapse. So I don't know if this is, you know, the first stage of something that's going to come back to haunt us in years to come. Or if this is just, listen, for every family that struggles really hard in Southern California, there's a family that's doing well enough to be able to afford a house even at these median prices. L.A. County, five hundred thirty grand. Orange and County. Let's honest, and let's be honest, that's not a better homes and garden house. That that median home price does not get you a house that's going to be on a magazine cover. Orange County, six hundred and sixty grand. That's a record, by the way. Six sixty for the median price. Yeah. Ventura County, five twenty five. Riverside, three hundred and forty grand. And San Bernardino County bringing up the rear, two hundred and ninety five thousand dollar median price. And San Diego, surprisingly, I, I thought this would be higher, and it's right in the middle at four ninety five. Yeah, I thought the, it would be higher because you've got some inland parts of San Diego yeah. County and stuff that aren't that are kind of like the San Bernardino County of yeah. San Diego County, and, and that's why I think Ventura County's is not higher because Ventura County you have the Thousand Oaks and the the Westlake Villages and such, but you also have a lot of rural areas in Ventura County that yeah. bring that median down. Well, even the LA price is is sort of artificially low in the yeah. sense that it includes the Antelope Valley area where housing prices are much less expensive yep. than down in LA proper. Every time I say that down in LA proper, then I'm immediately like, I, I'm not trying to exclude you guys up there in right. Lancaster and Palmdale and all of that. You're totally a part of the LA County fam, but your houses just don't cost as much. Housing prices are higher, but you can not spend so much money on a blank and we can fill in that blank now. Yes, there's a bargain on something wonderful. We'll tell you about it. Handle on the news continues. It's KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. The smaller the Starbucks, the smaller your order. If you have a Starbucks the size of the airport, knock yourself out. Stand in line with all you other people who have 9,000 levels of foam and non-foam. But if you're at a Starbucks where there's one guy working it, coffee. Boom. You're gone. You just want caffeine. Tim Conway Jr. Tonight at 6. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. I'll start cooling out my head. I'm on a cover myself with the ashes of you. And nobody is going to give a damn. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Bill Handel Show. Finishing up Handel on the News Late Edition. Uh, Bill, Michelle, Jennifer, and Justin are on vacation. Jennifer comes back tomorrow. She'll be uh, rejoining Aaron Bender in the wake-up call at 5 a.m. And we have Wayne Resnick in for Bill. I just spoke about myself in the third person. That's creepy. Mike Schaefer is here. Aaron Bender is here. Lead story. There's a skinny dog. Oh, well, let's get to one of six... Los Angeles Animal Shelters. Let's adopt that skinny dog, take it home, and throw it snossages all day, every day, and fatten it up. And you can do that because between now and the start of the year, the adoption fee is only $20.17. Six L.A. animal shelters are offering that deal. They're partnering with um, some private rescue groups. To do this. Best Friends Animal Society, uh, No Kill LA Pet Adoption Center. LA Animal Services website has the locations. That's where you want to go. $20. Is, yeah. I mean, if that's been if that's been the sticking point for you, if the adoption fees have been the sticking point, then now you have no excuse whatsoever. And I know this has been said a gabillion times, okay? We're treading well-worn territory, but it's true. It is just one of the fundamental truths. You... Rescue an animal from a shelter, that animal is going to love you so hard, you'll be happy every day of your life that you did it. Well, Disney is in a pickle now with the death of Carrie Fisher. She had finished filming... Episode 8, which is set to be released late next year. But she was also, and and many others, uh, were supposed to be really involved in Episode 9, the last in the series. What are they going to do about that? Well, they have some choices. Um, 
they could cast, I don't know, see, the, the thing is that, all right, let me just say it, they could cast a lookalike type person, which they did, there's some precedent for that, because uh, who was the guy that, that played um, Alba's Dumbledore? Richard Harris? Yes. And then he died after the second Harry Potter movie, and they recast somebody who basically looked like him. They could try that, but I really feel people aren't going to go for that. Or Paul Walker. They got his brother to finish out that film. Yeah, right. Now, I don't uh, know if Carrie Fisher... With something like this, I just don't know if people are going to go for that. They could do some crazy CGI chicanery and like try to CGI her face onto somebody for the next movie. <clears throat> now, they got to get permission from her estate to do that. Because in California, you got to get permission to use a celebrity image. I think it's for 70 years after they pass away. You've got to get permission. Now, once you're gone, if you're a celebrity, once you're gone for 71 years, people can do whatever they want with your face. They can put it on anything. Uh, The other thing they could do, I don't know if this is possible. Could they go back and basically reshoot the parts of eight that had her? And take out Princess Leia somehow, like completely redo it to kind of not put her in there in the first place, because then they won't have to wrestle with what to do about part nine. That's really terrible. I think you buy yourself some time on what to do with nine. You just let eight, you let eight come out with her and and you you figure out rewrite nine. Maybe so. Yeah, that's too bad. But you know they're scratching their heads big time in the boardrooms over there. Uh, Dylan Roof, we'll finish with this. Dylan Roof, how much evidence will he present in the penalty phase of his trial? Oh, somebody kill me, please. No evidence at all. He told the judge he will not have any witnesses. He will present no mitigating evidence to try to convince the jury to spare his life. And the judge said, well, listen, that's fine. You can do that. Why don't you go talk to your grandfather? His grandfather's a lawyer. Why don't you talk to your other family members one more time and then make your final, final, final decision? Is it is it not obvious to everybody he wants to get the death penalty? It's pretty clear that's what he wants. I don't know if it's because he thinks it's going to make him a martyr of some kind or whatever, but that's clearly what's going on. So if that's the case, it should be a short penalty phase, and the outcome should be a fait accompli, because the jury's going to be told you have to balance the aggravating and the mitigating factors. And if he doesn't present any mitigating factors, there's nothing to balance. I ask you, Wayne Resnick, how many prisoners are on the federal death row? There are nearly 3,000 overall in the country. How many on the on the federal? Uh, I'm not row? sure what the count is right now. Obviously, not nearly as many. Deathpenaltyinfo.org has just 62. Yeah, yeah, it's well under 100 because you know federal. Pro- I mean, there are far fewer federal prosecutions overall than state prosecutions, and obviously, but you know what the difference? I'll tell you what the difference is. What is the success rate of the feds in getting the death penalty when they seek it compared to at the state level? It's much higher. And what percentage of federal death row inmates actually end up getting executed? Much, much higher. Yeah. So the, the Fed, it's a smaller but more efficient system in that regard. And he, this is a federal case. That's why you brought that up. So he got, yeah, no, he's, he's, he's going down. And then will he pursue any appeals? Is he going to play this game in, in this case? Right. Play this game of no evidence to save my life, but then turn around and once the death penalty is imposed, start to appeal his head off. I guess we'll have to wait and see. All right. When we come back. Oh, this is great. Um, You know, Scientology. Heard of it? Well, there's a guy named Ron Miscavige. He's the father of uh, Scientology leader David Miscavige. And he's written a book about what happened to him when he left Scientology, and you I don't use the phrase bone-chilling that often in my life, but this book about what Scientology tried to do to him is bone-chilling. The book's called Ruthless, 
And uh, Ron will be talking to Bill Handel when we come back on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI News leads local news on the hour on the half. And when it breaks, I'm Aaron Bender. She put the hurt and hurt. She put the why and try. She put the SOB and sober. She put the hang and hangover. She put the X and sex. She put the low and blow. She put a big F you in my future. Yes, she's got a way. She's got a way with words. KFI AM 640 handle here. And I want to introduce you to a gentleman by the name of Ron uh, Miscavige. Uh, who wrote a book about his son, David Miscavige, who happens to be uh, the president and runs a little organization called Scientology. And so Ron wrote the book, Ruthless Scientology, My Son, David Miscavige, and Me. Uh, So, Ron, uh, let's start out with, uh, you wrote this book, How Are You Still Alive? Well, look, at uh, I wrote the book basically after I found out that my daughter Denise and her husband were never going to talk to me, myself and my wife again. I left. I actually left the church on March 25th in 2012. Uh, I was followed by two private investigators for a year and a half, being paid ten thousand dollars a week. And when they caught these guys in the trunk, they had handguns, Jeez. a stun gun, two rifles, and a silencer fitted hey, up with now, that. Is, now we heard. We heard. Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, this book fills in. God. Connects all the all right. So, Ron, Ron, let me let me ask. Okay, uh, we've heard stories uh, about, or at least the accusations uh, of Scientology following people, and if you leave uh, your persona non grata, to the extent that all of this happened, and it seems like uh, more of this happened than to most people. How much of it is you being his dad, in your opinion? I I, I think that's almost all of it because. I would be considered to be a high-profile risk. And uh, my life got to the point where I couldn't tolerate living where I was living at the base in Hemet, California. I mean, my mail was checked before it went out, before it came in. If I got on the telephone, I had somebody listening in on an extension. I couldn't leave that base to go get the simple amenities in life, like shaving cream or some socks. I had to buy them on the Internet or the canteen on the base. And my life was completely regimented and... uh, I just didn't want to live that way anymore. Okay, it, it changed 180 degrees from when I got in in 1970 until when I left in 2000. Okay, so let's talk about 1970 because I know you brought your son in or he was raised uh, in the organization. Uh, why did you join up and uh, what influence did you have to join? Well, I was involved in a multi-level marketing scheme called Holiday Magic. And at one of the meetings we had to introduce people to this uh, particular thing, there was a guy there by the name of Mike Hess who said he was a Scientologist. For some reason, that name rang a bell. I pinned him down for about a half an hour. He told me about it. He gave me a little exercise to do. If you ever got a headache, you could get rid of it. I tried it out later. It worked, and it it rang a bell. And I thought, you know what? i got to check this out. That's how I got interested in it, and I was so interested that I got my whole family involved in it. And with David, there was a specific thing I had done because he had been plagued with asthma since he was a little baby. And it just killed me to see him go into these asthmatic attacks. And I'm helpless. And he turned blue. And I actually took him down to see a Scientology practitioner. And he took him in a session. Forty five minutes later, he came out and it looked like he was cured. And he said, Daddy says, I'm handled. My asthma is gone. Wow. uh, That was his epiphany as far as I'm concerned. I think it was at that point that he decided he was going to do something with this in his life. How old was he at the time, Ron? He was nine years old. And and at nine, he decided Scientology was for him. Well, I tell you, that's my opinion, because truthfully, asthma had been the bane of his existence. Now, it didn't cure it, but it definitely mitigated it, and it went away. And he never had, as a child, any more severe attacks like that. Yes, I do believe that that was the point where he thought, if this is so good, I've got to help get this out to this world. Now, you you were a member, and you watched your son uh, go up the ladder, and I'm assuming a meteoric rise. Uh, tell me how you felt and what were you experiencing as he was moving up in uh, the levels of Scientology? Well, look, at that time, I mean, I was a true believer. I mean, I disseminated it and uh, 
just I, I was very proud of him because he was a very bright guy. Uh, I tell you, as a little kid, he and I got along great. I mean, he was a very affectionate kid, smart, great sense of humor. But when he joined the Sea Organization, and this is after L. Ron Hubbard died, he saw his opportunity to rise to the top, and uh, he just took the reins and went for it. How and, old was he at that time? Well, he was in his uh, mid-20s. He was, was in his mid-20s. And did, uh, in terms of his rise, what did he do to go to the top that other people at his level did not do? What makes him so special? Okay, well, first of all, he had uh, one of these, we would call it a cognition, where you would say, uh-huh, so that's the way it is. He, at at one point, did get a, a very severe attack of asthma that he had been taken to the hospital to the emergency room and when he was there when he was picked up by the gentleman who took him there he said you know he says i just had a realization that power is not granted it's assumed and it, that was his mantra and he assumed that power and he just moved up through anybody uh who maybe would be in his way and had him pushed off to the side or removed and rose right to the top that's how we did it and how did he specifically do that was it a question if he was on a board, he convinced uh, other people to make him the honcho? Mechanically, how did he do it, Ron? Okay. First of all, he got himself in a position that he was the person that was right on the communication line of L. Ron Hubbard. Like any communication that went to L. Ron Hubbard went through him. Now, when you hold a position like that, that's quite a bit of power. Sure. So he, using that position, he just put himself in charge. And he is that charismatic and that powerful. Nobody dared challenge him on it. And really, that's how he did it. It was, you could say it's that simple, but I mean, that's a hell of a move to make. And he did it. And is it because uh, he was, uh, he understood it and other people did not? Because it almost seems like uh, the people that he was around were not that sophisticated and really didn't understand the mechanics of moving to power. It almost sounds like Stalin taking over the Politburo. Yeah, I'd say it's a hell of an analogy, but, you know, it, it was something else. And uh, along with that came a, a change in his life and how he was, because there was a gentleman by the name of Lord Acton uh, who lived in the 1800s, to the early 1900s, a British guy, member of parliament. He is the one that said power tends to corrupt and absolute power yeah. corrupts absolutely. And I think this is what has happened to David over the years, because he did a 180 from when he was a little kid to the position he is in right now. All right, Ron, and let's take let's let's take a break. I want to come back and uh, I want to do another segment on this. Uh, we'll be right back with Ron uh, Miscavige, uh, author of Ruthless Scientology, my son David Miscavige, and me. We'll be back. KFI AM six forty. More stimulating talk starts now. KFI and iHeart Radio station. I'm a KFI AM 640, Bill Handel here. Ron Miscavige, uh, the father of David Miscavige, uh, the guy who runs Scientology. Ron was just telling us how at nine, David Miscavige actually got the word, if you will, uh, coming home to Scientology meeting and then moved up to be the head honcho. Uh, Ron, how long did it take David from the time he started making the move to the time he had the kind of power that is now? Well, first of all, when he joined the Sea Org, he was 16 years old. And uh, I found him at home one day when I came home from work laying in bed. And he looked like he was pondering something. And I went in the room and says, hey, Dave, what's up, man? And he said, listen, Dad, he says, I, I, I don't want to go to school anymore. He says, all the kids around me are taking drugs. I just don't want to be part of this scene. I want to go and help L. Ron Hubbard. And, man, I thought, you know, if he wants to do this, and he already by that point was very adept at anything in Scientology. He took it to a fish like takes the water. I remember when I was 17 years old, I wanted to join the Marine Corps, and that was a purpose of mine, and I'm glad I did. And I thought, well, he's only a year younger, but if that's what he wants to do, maybe he can make a great career out of it. So his formal education ended at, what, 17? 16, that's 16. right. And, oh, so uh, obviously he was a couple years short of graduating high school, but a very, yes, very right. bright, bright guy. So while he was going up the ranks, uh, I mean, there's dad still involved. What was your relationship uh, during that time? 
Well, when he joined the Sea Org, I mean, he wrote to me. We'd be on the telephone talking. We had a very good relationship. I mean, and I would go down to the Flag Land Base in Clearwater, Florida, to receive various auditing and various services. And I would see him when I was down there, and we we just got along great. It was not a bad relationship at all. I enjoyed it, and so did he. So when did it start, did it start going south for you? Well, look. In 1985, I joined what's called the Sea Organization, which would be the I was I was going to say it's like the priesthood in the Catholic Church, but it's more like the cardinals in Rome. And David would be would be more akin to the pope, because that's where all the major decisions are made regarding policy and how the church operates. So I joined the Sea Organization and went to the base in Hemet, California. And immediately I went to work in the music department because I've done that my whole life. And I come out of the music studio one day. This is after I had been there for maybe a month. And I saw him walking with his entourage uh, about 30 yards away from me. And I just shouted out, hey, Dave. Well, he turned around and gave me a look. And he didn't have to say anything. But at that moment, I realized, hey, wait a minute. I better not do that anymore because on this base, I'm another staff member. I'm not his father. And while I was there, even though on my birthdays, when he'd send me a birthday card or get me a nice meal from some great restaurant in L.A. or on Christmas, send me gifts. He always referred to me as dad in the in the card. But personally, when he spoke to me, he called me Ron. Really? And on, on that base, you're a staff member first and foremost. You're, you're not a family member when you're, you're working there. You know, that's actually, that was the beginning of the change in my eyes. You know, that's actually heartbreaking, uh, Ron, to uh, watch you lose your son. And is it because uh, he just went squirrely? Because it sounds to me like someone who simply stepped over the line in terms of personal relationship. I, I mean, were you the closest person in his life? I felt that I was. I mean, I just – look, it, it's – when, when you get in a position where you have power and control over that much, that many people and that much of an organization, that big of an organization, it, it does something to you. And this is what I just quoted uh, a few minutes ago about power corrupting. I really feel that's what happened to him. Yeah, but- as far, listen, as far as I'm concerned, Bill, I'm telling you something. I think power is like a drug. No, I Once get that. You, get no, I think, of it, you just don't want to let go. I of understand. It. And I get that. And I couldn't agree more. And uh, I've met enough people and read enough books. But they're still mom and dad. And what you're saying is dad just disappeared in his life as he became more powerful. And how about his mother, incidentally, Ron? Where does she fit in this? Well, his mother was not in the Sea Organization. And she was, um, she lived right down in Clearwater, Florida, close to the Flagland base. So did he have any relationship with her? Well, I would say yes. I mean, I wasn't around for that because I would be at the base, and if he ever went to see her, it would be down there, down in Clearwater. And uh, it it wasn't – I wasn't privy to their meetings because once I joined the Sea Organization, I realized uh, I just couldn't be married to her. She wasn't going to do it, and I did, and uh, we got divorced. Because of that? Yes. Wow. Well, because of that, but be be honest with you, and I covered this in my book. We had a, quite a stormy relationship, and it. uh, I just felt it'd be better if we just cut the ties. And unbelievably, after we got divorced, we became the best of friends. It's unbelievable how that works. So uh, he, you described in the last segment that you had people following you. You had your mail censored and looked at. You couldn't go outside and purchase anything on your own or leave, uh, leave the base. Uh when did that start happening, and any idea why? Well, as far as, like, on the telephone calls, if you made a telephone call, you had to have somebody on the other end listening in on the call to make sure that you didn't say anything that you're not supposed to say. And that's everybody, right? That's everybody. That's right. Now, that started with a guy, this is in the 90s, and when Tom Cruise came there to receive some auditing, this guy was calling his mother and giving her data about all the activities that Tom was engaged in, and she was selling it to the National Enquirer. So that that's a no-no in anybody's book. So sure. because of that, everybody had to have Got their it. phones monitored. And then it just progressed into everything in your life being monitored, and your personal freedoms went down to zero. I'll tell you, man, it, 
it, it was not a way to live. I, I just couldn't live that way anymore. Hey, uh, one last question before we have to bail. Ron, uh, in terms of um, David with the rest of uh, the staff at Scientology, is he admired? Is he? Uh, are they frightened of him? How do they perceive David, the people around him? I think they feel, and their minds are in this state, that he is uh, a person who, no matter what, he can keep Scientology going. But they fear him more than anything. He's not a person that you want to cross or get on the wrong side of. Unfortunately, but that's the, which that's you, the way I feel. Which is exactly what you have done. Do I fear him now? No, I don't. Right. And because you, but, I'm out of I'm out of his control. I'm living my life. But and, he can still. Uh, fo- I'm very he, glad that I left. But he can that. still follow you around. He can still make your life miserable. Why isn't that happening? Well, I think it might still be happening, okay. but I haven't caught these guys. Maybe they're a little smarter than the other PIs that were following me. You Got know? it. All right, Ron. Uh, thank you, uh, Ron Miscavige, the author of Ruthless Scientology. My son David Miscavige and me. Fascinating, Ron. Thank you, sir, for being with us. And thank you for having you me got on, it. Bill. I appreciate it. No problem. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk means a more stimulated you. KFI and iHeartRadio station. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It's the Bill Handel Show. Bill's on vacation. Wayne Resnick sitting in. Our long national nightmare is over. I'm talking about John Kerry's speech about the Middle East. That was a long speech for no good purpose. Um, We know the backstory. Right, the Security Council passed a resolution condemning Israel for building settlements in in a disputed part of uh, the land, and the United States abstained from the vote, even though they could have stopped the resolution with their veto power. Israel accused the United States of actually engineering the whole thing, which means, I mean, if that's true, then it paints the Obama administration as fairly petty that in their final days that they would want to orchestrate another slam against Israel from a U.N. that has slammed Israel dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Now, during the speech today, he did point out, because as we mentioned during the news and, and also briefly during the show, that he says that no administration has been better for Israeli security than the Obama administration and back that up by saying that not since 1967 has there been an administration to block UN resolutions that were anti-Israel except for the Obama administration. I don't even know what he's talking about because that's a lie. That's insane what he said. I think there's a lot of people in the Reagan administration and the and both Bush administrations who would beg to differ with his view that the Obama administration has been the best administration for Israel. Also saying that there is no viable alternative other than a two-state solution. Well, fair enough. There are many people who who agree. Look, can you, you know what? Here's the thing. First of all, that situation is impossibly complicated and almost impossible for for anyone not inside the situation to really have a perspective. I mean, we everybody thinks they have some perspective on the Israel-Palestine problem. But unless you're over there, you really don't. And so it's kind of weird to see him uh, bloviating. And for two reasons. One, again... Honest to God, it's impossible to really fully understand all the implications and ramifications. So what do we tend to get here? Here in in the United States, we tend to get people who are very um, simplistic, right? You you either have the big pro-Israel, like Israel does no wrong, rah-rah Israel for every step of the way, and that's not entirely fair, 
But then you have the other side, which is like, Israel, it's genocide. Are you kidding? Get out of here. Israel is genocide? Ugh. So it's much more nuanced than that. And there's a lot of moving parts and there's a lot of complicated sensitivities. And definitely it's going to take, you know, both sides sincerely coming to a table and working something out. Although who believes that even if that happened and there was a really solid framework in place, each side gave up whatever they needed to and they both shook hands and they said, this is the way it's going to be from now on. That a month later, you know, somebody's not going to lob a rocket at somebody. Or some soldiers not gonna uh, overreact and shoot a kid. This is the nature of the situation over there. Now he laid out a plan. Kerry laid out a plan. Let's hear his brilliant plan to solve this centuries-old problem. Right? He's got it, everybody. He's really what he should be doing now is you know getting his desk cleaned out and wiping down his desk. Uh, with antibacterial wipes to make it nice for the next people who are going to go in there. But instead, he's got the plan. Here it is. They go back to the 1967 borders. So everybody's going to have to swap property. And they have to agree that they're going to swap property and stay that way. Two states for two people. He said Jewish people here, Arab people here. Okay, Um, a fair and reasonable solution to the Palestinian refugee issue. That's not an actual plan. That's a that's a result, right? Like if you said to me, what is your plan for uh, your health? And I said, my plan is to end up healthier. That's not a plan. That's an outcome that you want. And then here's the thing he said that makes no sense to me. And if I'm wrong about what I'm about to say, I'm happy to be corrected. He said part of the plan and the only way you'll ever have peace in the Middle East is if Jerusalem becomes the capital of both countries, Israel and whatever this new Palestinian country would be. Is there any capital anywhere in the world that is the capital of more than one country? I'm not aware of... Now, there are a lot of countries that have more than one capital in them. South Africa has three capitals. That's fine. You can have as many capitals in your own country as you want. You want to have 50 capitals in the United States, go right ahead. But there's no there's no city that's the capital of more than one country. I don't even know how you can do that. But that is one of his big ideas about how you're going to get peace. And maybe the fact... That he's telling you that peace in the Middle East depends on a preposterous idea. Really, the message, I don't think it's his message that he meant to give, but the true message that's coming out is it's impossible to resolve. If it requires pigs to fly and one city to be the capital of more than one country, and it requires all of us right now to touch our left elbow with our left hand. Go ahead and try that. See what chance you got of making that happen. If those are the kinds of things that are required, then obviously it can't happen. And I love how they're coming out now. They're done. There's no time for them to do anything. Why now is he speaking about his big plans for the Middle East when he's basically... You know what it would be like? If uh, after the Rams told Jeff Fisher, hey, we're sorry, we're not going to need your services anymore. But he still had enough time to go get the things out of his desk and, you know, tie up some loose ends. Right. And if in that little period between the time they told him they don't need him anymore and the time he had to actually officially vacate the premises for good, he gave a big thing about his uh, coaching philosophy and the strategies that the Rams should pursue for the rest of the season. And people would be like, wait, aren't you done here, sir? Why are you? You failed. Basically, you've failed. Now you're on your way out. And now you want to tell us how to fix everything. So now we're waiting for the reaction. Right. 
the re- the rest of the world will now react. They will see what they have to say. But man, was it a long speech only to end up with the conclusion that it's very complicated over there and there's probably nothing that would ever work long term. All right. Hey, when we come back, I have some really wacky police related stories for you. And I'll share them on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. Imagine this. A grown man in law enforcement for decades. Sheriff of Los Angeles County calls up two clowns on the radio. Live on the air offers to show his gonads. You wonder whether or not I've got gonads and I'll come there and show you what I've got. Think about that. John and Ken. Today at 2. KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk. KFI AM 640, more stimulating talk. It's the Bill Handel Show. Bill is on vacation. Wayne Resnick sitting in. Coming up at 10 o'clock, the Gary and Shannon Show. In for Gary and Shannon. Mo Kelly is going to be here for you. Hey, let's talk about some uh, crazy cop stories. Here's one. A New York City police officer has been suspended without pay. What did he do? Did he beat somebody? No. Did he steal evidence? No. Did he pull over a famous person and let them go and then people found out about the preferential treatment? That's probably no. Here's what happened. Early in the morning uh, on the 22nd, the Santiago family, they're sound asleep. And the next thing they know, and you know, man, when cops come to your house early in the morning, it's not a polite Hello, we'd like to sit down and have some tea. That's not what's going on. So uh, they go in there, they wake up the whole family, and they say, we're looking for, I don't remember what the guy's name was, we're looking for Fred. Fred who? We're looking for Fred Marbolabu. And they said, we don't know anybody by that name, and that even sounds like a fake name. So they were looking for somebody that the cops didn't, that, that the family didn't even know. Okay, they, It was a mistake. Now, while this is happening, though, it doesn't happen quickly. When police come to your house and it's a mistake, they don't immediately recognize it and go, our bad, and they leave. This can still take hours for them to sort out what's going on. So the whole family is handcuffed for a couple of hours while they're trying to sort out what's going on. Fine. One of the cops, they notice, one of the cops is texting. I'm like, that's weird. The cop is texting. So later, later, after it's all over, one of the Santiago's gets a message from one of her friends. And the friend goes, look at this. And it's a picture of the Santiago family sitting there in handcuffs. Well, how the heck did that happen? Because the cop Snapchatted pictures of them in their handcuffs. And that cop now has been on suspension for 30 days with no pay. Santiago's doesn't think that's enough. Yeah, probably not. I don't think cops should be Snapchatting pictures of people in handcuffs. So that happened. Uh, Here's another one. A court case has ended. It was a reckless driving case, but it was a really weird one. And the defendant was arguing that he could not be convicted of reckless driving because of his First Amendment rights. That seems weird. Here's what happened. The guy was riding his bicycle. And he's riding his bicycle down the middle of a a pretty busy street. And there's a cop uh, parked by the side of the road. And the guy's on the bike and he's riding. And he sees the cop. So he takes his hands off the handlebars and he gives the cop the double bird. While he's still pedaling down the street. So the cop decides to follow him. And now a little bit later down the road, the cop's following him and the guy on the bike, he does it again. Double bird riding his bike down the middle of the street. So the cop pulls him over and he cites him for reckless driving. Why? Because, number one, reckless driving applies to bicycles. And number two, when he took his hands off, it meant he couldn't steer the bike anymore. 
And if something happened, suddenly he wouldn't be able to steer or control the bike. So he's creating a danger. So it's reckless driving. So the guy went to, to court and he said, you can't do that. You only did that because I was flipping you off. And the cop said, no, I was doing it because you couldn't steer your bike. And the guy had a very interesting defense. And he said, oh, yes, I could. I could steer the bike still while I was giving you the double flip off. How? I could steer it with my legs. Well, the judge did not agree that he could steer his bike with his legs while he was double flipping off a cop. And so reckless driving conviction sustained. That's the way it works. You know, you have absolutely every right to flip off a cop. There is no, there is zero question in the law that you can flip off a cop. You can flip off every cop you see every time you see one. And cops know this. They know you've got a constitutional right to flip them off. Yet, as much legal protection as you have, it still is a pretty dumb idea. Mo Kelly is coming in for Gary and Shannon here on KFI AM 640. More stimulating talk.